Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to say that joining me today is Quentin Stafford Fraser. Quentin, how are you? I am well, thank you. I'm smiling already because we had such a good time last week when we connected just to kind of get to know each other and spent quite a lot of time having a great conversation. So um, today we get to record it. Quentin is a lot of things. I was very impressed by you have a little description of the things you've done in the past on your website. And it goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> and I uh, I thought as a nice bit of context, it would be great to read a little bit of that. I did cut it up a little bit just for brevity. I thought that might be an interesting way to just give a broad sense of where you've been and where you're going. and Yeah, I'm sure you shouldn't believe everything you read on the web, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. That's why I'm going to ask you specifically about them. But I thought that might be a fun way to do it. So here we go. So from your website, here's what I read. It says, I'm a computer scientist, entrepreneur, part-time academic, full-time gadget enthusiast based in Cambridge. CEO of a small company called Telemark, which does a mix of software development, tech consultancy, photography, video production, teaching, and writing. That alone has a lot to it, right, Quentin? <laughs> well, I, yes, we'll come back to some of that. Yeah, Oh, I will, certainly. However, it goes on, and here we go. For the past few years, I've also held a part-time research post at Cambridge University's Computer Lab, currently helping to organize the lab's interactions with industry and with its alumni and its audio-video output. Previously, I was working on the Endeavor project, exploring how computer vision and machine learning can improve the experiences of car drivers. I recently served as the interim director of engineering at the Digital Catapult while they searched for a permanent full-time appointee. I have often been credited in the media with inventing the webcam. This I will certainly ask you about because you say this is not entirely justified, though I certainly did have something to do with it. And uh, so I'll touch on that in a sec. I've also become rather fond of home automation, connecting almost everything in my home up through the amazing Home Assistant. My previous startup before Telemark was Camvine, Cambridge Visual Networks, a company developing the new applications based around network displays, which I started in 2007. I was also a founder and managing director of the, hmm, I don't know how to pronounce this, Ndio project? It's Ndio. Ndio, love it. Yes. I'll explain the name if you like later. Oh, I will, yeah, we'll dive into a few of these things. I don't know if we can touch on them all. But the breadth here is what's impressive to me. So Neo attempted to find new, more affordable uh, network computing architecture for the billions of people who will never be able to afford one PC each. That sounds well worth doing. And just for a few more, before that, I was working at Exiblio, which I co-founded in 2004 with the aim of endowing paper documents with some of the power of digital ones. That sounds fascinating. I also co-founded Noom Research, now DisplayLink, in 2003 and was the CEO for its first couple of years. I've authored and been listed as an inventor on dozens of patents. None of these has yet made me any money, but they've done okay for other people. Most are now owned by Google. For several years, I was a research scientist at AT&T Labs in Cambridge, the lab which was formerly ORL. I did a PhD. Oh, Dr. Quentin. <laughs> I did a PhD on augmented reality in the Rainbow Group at the University of Cambridge Computer Lab. And it goes on. I was, I think, the first full-time computer officer at Cambridge College 
During this time, I believe I may have created the world's first 10-set Venn diagram, which is no small thing if you care about these things. And then the last thing, I think I ran the first web server in Cambridge. I certainly ran the first one in the university, which then became the platform for computer science students who wanted to do projects around this newfangled World Wide Web thing. <laughs> How is it hearing all of that from, from someone else reading it for you? I think I should have a much briefer website, really. I, I, you know, I do point out, I, I actually have quite a substantial personal website. And it's not that I, I think I'm deserving of this great monument to myself. It's just that I keep adding bits and I never get around to deleting stuff. And, well, and that's what I gathered was that this was, you know, because some of the things I, I which I didn't read mentioned, like, you can hear me say hello here. And, and in parentheses, you, you state at the time that I wrote this, that wasn't possible for all computers and all browsers. <laughs> so it's neat how you've just sort of added things as you go. And I think that's actually really nice. Well, I think that that recording of me saying hello, which just says something like, hello, I'm Quentin, pleased to meet you, is probably in a... <laughs> It's, it's in an audio format that it's remarkable still plays on most browsers because I think I recorded it on my Spark station back in about, you know, uh, <laughs> certainly not this millennium anyway. <laughs> so, um, back when not all browsers could play audio. And if you actually had one that could, then you could hear me say hello. Pretty exciting. That I think gives a sense that you've let's just say you've been around. You've seen some history that's pretty interesting. I'm really old, so that's a nice way of saying yes. um, Seasoned, perhaps, is a nice way to put it. That's it. That's good. I like that. But the early web, you know, for, for me, I'm slightly younger than you. For me, the early web, in my perspective, was dial-up internet and the pains and beauties of that. You know, having a home PC was a big thing. Uh, actually, the first computer I used was a Commodore 64 that my father purchased that was quite old at the time. But, you know, he forced us to use the spreadsheet there for he, he would give us an allowance and we would tabulate. A man with foresight, clearly. Yeah. 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 So that's, you know, my early history of, you know, five and a half inch floppy disks. But you've seen a little bit before that, which really fascinates me. So, Well, yeah, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I do think that you and I have, have been very fortunate to grow up when we did, right? I think, and, and, and be interested in technology. It's like, you know, growing up and being interested in cars at around the time of Henry Ford or whatever. But, but computing has happened so fast and, and there's been all of these changes within a lifetime. I, I I really did have to sort of solder my first computer together and and I've gone from that in a very short period of time to something like, you know, the iPhones and iPads sitting on my desk are just so far away from that. And, you know, there aren't many fields, I think, in which you could have that exciting a change during your professional life. And so that being said, I, I'm curious, what was it about the computers? You know, you, you mentioned you soldered your own. Yeah. <laughs> maybe some pieces together. And some of us still do that these days just for fun. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But you do it for fun, not you know, not because of necessity. No. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. through necessity. Exactly. But I'm curious, what was it, you know, as, as a young Quentin, what was it that really grabbed you about this, this relatively new world? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think 
I mean, computers weren't new when I was young in the sense that, you know, you saw them on television programs and things. You saw, mm. you may see them on the, the you know, the deck of the Star, uh, Starship Enterprise, but... As you should. <laughs> that's right. But, you know, I grew up just at the point where suddenly this was something my parents could afford. They had to save up, but they could afford to give me one. And mm. only a few years before that, I had used a computer, but it had been in a museum in London, you know, the Science Museum in London, not because it was an old thing, but the Science Museum in London has a lot of new stuff as well as old stuff. And I remember when I first got my hands, actually, I was able to type at a keyboard and give an instruction to a computer, which was one of these things you'd only seen, you know, in sort of Hollywood movies up till then. And so that sudden shift to being something that you you could sit in front of on the, you know, floor of your sitting room at home and the only display we had was the television we only had one television in the house so nobody could watch tv while i was using my computer kind of thing <laughs> right again it was all of a sudden this unknown world i don't want to wax lyrical too early in this conversation but i think that <laughs> i've often thought that computer science in some senses is almost the most creative subject the most creative almost art form is it uh, maybe a pushing it a bit but you start when you when you're trying to solve something using computers you start often just with a thought you have a problem you want to solve you have thoughts about how to do it and you turn those thoughts into a solution to a problem or maybe a game or maybe something beautiful or maybe some but but in general it's it's thought matter translated into something tangible with possibly less sort of intervening stuff than than almost any other any other activity i think it, it really is capturing thoughts and and anyway that's what it felt like to me at the start you know the just simple things like i don't know you want to make a a picture of a cube rotate on the screen in front of you, you had to think about, oh, okay, so hang on, what's the coordinates of that going to be? Well, you you want it rotated by this angle, so you have to work out the cosine of this angle and, and you know, and, and work out where the appropriate coordinates of this cube are going to be. And then it looks a bit funny and you realise that's because you didn't include perspective. So you say, oh, hang on, how does perspective work? And, you know, you, it really was, you built everything from scratch there because when you turned your computer on, all you got was a flashing prompt at which you would have to type code. And so if you wanted this thing to do anything, you had to start being creative from the word go. And that's something, you know, that we've lo largely lost in computers. We turn them on as a, as a tool to do something. But you weren't forced to be creative the moment you turned it on as you were in the past. And that's partly what the Raspberry Pi and things like that have tried to, to recapture, of course. Um, yeah, that that conversion from imagination into reality and then just kind of exploring from there and seeing what's possible, right? Yes. And, and you know, in the past, if you wanted your computer to be able to interact with the real world, you did often have to plug things into the back and solder things together and make up the circuit boards yourself and so on. And, you know, the Raspberry Pi was started by friends of mine who felt that the computer science students that we were getting in the university at Cambridge, they were coming in with actually much less experience now than they had had in the past. Because in the past, you to, to use computers, you, you sort of had to be an enthusiast. Whereas now, people were coming in just thinking, oh, computers might be interesting to learn about, but they hadn't gone through that process of, of having to understand it so much before you could even use it. And so the idea of the Raspberry Pi was actually to give you a, 
a much more basic computer that really didn't do very much for you out of the, you know, <laughs> when you plugged it in and turned it on. And you had to understand a bit more about it to accomplish anything. And that was quite deliberate. The, the hardware is quite capable of running all sorts of stuff. I and mean, they could have pr provided you with a very slick experience out of the box. But part of the idea was, no, actually, you need to understand that how power supplies work <laughs> and how to write code and so on to, and how operating systems boot up and so on to a much greater degree to be able to use one of them. And I think that's part of why it's been such a success. You know, you mentioned you had to be an enthusiast previously to really get into computers. It seems almost the opposite these days in that we all use computers in our everyday lives from phones to, you know, everything else really, to your car even. And yet the enthusiasts are the one going to these simpler machines like Raspberry Pis and the single board computers and such. And so it almost feels like a reversal to me, which is really fascinating. Yes, I think that's probably right. It's almost more like, you know, everybody drives a car. So if you're an enthusiast, you get a classic car or you build a car yourself or you, you know, put bids in your car and you have a camper van or whatever it may be, right? It's <laughs> when when something becomes a commodity, then you need to find a new spin on it. And, uh, uh, and that may be using computers to automate your home or it may be, uh, you know, just actually turning on a computer and, and, you know, sending an email with it is is not something that, uh, that is, well, it's less of an adventure now than it used to be. So we find other things to do, right? For sure, right. And because everybody does it, right? You, you, you want to find your own niche or you want to, you want to, if, if you want to make a, a difference to the world or even just a difference to your local bit of the world, you have to do something different from what everybody else is doing. And so I think that's part of the part of the appeal. You know, part of what has worried me in the past has been exploring the idea that maybe we've gotten to the point where computers have done all of the things that humanity needs them to do. And yet when I reflect on that just slightly more, especially in the context of you mentioning it as quite an art form, I think, well, no, we're we're really just started, aren't we? Like certainly computers have taken us to the moon and there's all sorts of things on other planets now. And yet I think in some ways we're just started. Like there, there's, do you feel like there's a lot more possibility there in this, this realm? I, yes, I think, I think there is a great deal more, but I think, I think the rapid acceleration at the start of computing has, it sort of tails off for a while. I, I think actually the analogy with cars is is kind of interesting here because between school and college, I, I worked for a, a, a car firm, you know, just for a year and a half uh, for Austin Rover cars as as they were then. And it was, you know, it was a useful experience of industry, but it wasn't at all sexy. There was nothing about, you know, nothing about it that made me want to carry on doing this after I finished as a student and so on. I thought that, you know, essentially cars had become dull and, you know, nothing really new was happening with them um, and hadn't really happened for, you know, 50 or 100 years. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few years ago, I got into doing stuff related to cars again, because you had this combination of electric vehicles, which were completely changing how cars were and could be built and what they were like to drive and so on. And you had this whole idea of autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, which again uh, was very interesting technologically. Car, uh, car companies were having to become, um, you know, software companies, uh, but also, you know, 
the whole shape of a, a vehicle what does it what does a car look like does it have to be do you, do you have to have everybody facing forwards you know if the car can drive itself and all of these sort of things are thrown open for innovation again we have vehicles that are bigger and smaller and quieter and and you know uh, different shapes and so on in a way that so much has been defined in the past by the basic shape of an internal combustion engine and four wheels and uh, and a gearbox and so on and and I think we're at a very exciting time now to be in the automobile industry which you know, we, we again we haven't really had I don't think I mean what's changed before before this advent of electric vehicles what's changed in the last you know five decades you know very very little yeah I think four wheel drive or all wheel drive in rally racing was really a huge innovation but even that's quite mechanical right but it didn't it didn't fundamentally change the shape of cars i mean i guess you could say automatic automatic gearboxes sure sure you know which uh some people still aren't keen on you know so there have been various small innovations but yeah i still don't know how much i buy the dream of fully self-driving vehicles but it seems to me that if we even get close to that then the way we think of and use cars could be completely different and I, I have some examples i like giving of this i mean the, the thing i'm almost most exciting i know you've done a lot of stuff with rvs in jupiter and uh, uh or camper vans and i've always thought that what i really want is a self-driving camper van or motorhome or rv one where in the evening i could you know i don't have enough space to 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 park it here but i could summon it from its out of town parking area and it would turn up at the doorstep and i would get in with my dog and my wife and a, a nice bottle of wine and a good movie and i would say ooh chamonix please chamonix being in the french alps and we'd wake up in the morning you know hundreds of miles away you might not want to drive a big RV around when you when you got there, but that's all right because you could just tell your car to follow you, <laughs> and so and and so you could wake up the following morning and take your dog for a walk in a different country, having slept through the travel process. Or another example I I, uh, I like to give is I'd really like a self driving car for when I'm walking. <laughs> tell me more. <laughs> so I like hiking, right? And and so much of certainly here, so much of Going for a walk involves finding a nice place to park and doing a circular route, which brings you back to your car again. And what about if you're driving along a road and you see a beautiful view and you say, hey, car, stop here, let me out. <laughs> and you just get out and the car carries on and you walk over the fields <laughs> and you walk over the hills and you cross the rivers. And at some point, which you don't have to decide in advance, when you get tired, you meet up with your car again and you have a comfy chair to take you home. But you know the the fact that you leave your car in one place and have to return to it in the same place again is something that you know is perhaps an artifact of the past and maybe in the future it, people will say what you always had to do sort of circular walks to get back to your transport that's crazy <laughs> and so yeah it, it'll be really interesting to see in i think in you know 5 decades time people may have a very different view of transport from what we have compared to the 5 decades you know ago right what was happening in the 60s well you know <laughs> the cars weren't really fundamentally that, that not in that kind of way but that different from much the same right yeah yeah even even just in those ideas that you just mentioned there about you know your car picking you up later 
has me pausing because I think that it's uh, very important to challenge our assumptions about the technologies that we're currently using. And I would imagine that's kind of one of your defining characteristics in much of the research and the projects that you've worked on in the past and currently and certainly in the future. And, um, and that always gets me sort of excited, I think, <laughs> is we need to test those assumptions. You know, I have a keyboard in front of me. Well, why should I be ty- typing on a keyboard? The thing's ancient, if you really think about it in the same context, right? Isn't that bizarre? How have we stuck with the QWERTY keyboard for this long, right? It, that, is, that is really strange because everybody knows it's inefficient and there have been so many attempts to replace it with other keyboards in the past with other layouts like the Vorjak keyboard, which is, you know, much better. Uh, in in terms of efficiency of typing, or with you know completely different keyboards, um, but it does it has stuck with us for a very long time. But even there, you see, I think that people as old as me are just not. Most of us we're just not good at typing at speed on small phone soft keyboards or iPad keyboards. Certainly, I love my iPad and I love my iPhone, but if I actually want to type something that's more than about two sentences long, I go and find a laptop or I at least go and find a Bluetooth keyboard so I can so I can use a keyboard to type it. Whereas, you know, I think yeah, kids today, you know, they have very, very versatile thumbs. You know, they can they, they can they can type with two thumbs what it used to take me an hour to type on my QWERTY keyboard. And I wonder when that'll change. I mean, what I do find though, which is another thing that's happened in the last few years is that speech recognition has got very good. I always had a problem with it, even though, you know, I don't have that stranger voice. <laughs> Maybe it's, you know, a transatlantic voice from the point of view of, uh, of many people writing software. But I always had real trouble with those, you know, telephone voice response systems where they would say, you know, they would ask you a question and say, Please say yes or no. <laughs> I say yes. I'm sorry. I didn't understand that. Please say yes or no. And, and you think, you know, how how hard can this be? And until eventually, after about the third try, they'd say, please say yes or press one or no or press. And I think, thank God. And I would, type, I would hit the key. Whereas now, because I'm not very good at typing fast on my phone, I dictate a lot of stuff to it. And I find the Siri dictation works really, really well. And um, I suspect Android is much the same. So the whole idea of talking to your computer, not just as dictation, I find actually is something I'm doing more and more, which again, you know, in theory, you've always been able to do in the past. But I think we've that's really come on in the last 10 years or so. Partly just because of the amount of data people can gather. Do you, do you find that what you, you may not know this answer, I want you to reflect <laughs> on it. Um, do you find that what you dictate to your, you know, I'll just call them computers, but it could be your phone or whatever, that what you dictate ends up being hmm, in, in almost a little bit of a different like parlance than what you would traditionally type? Oh, yes, probably. I think there are people, or there certainly used to be people, people who have had secretaries and so on more than I have, who are, who, you know, at least traditionally were very good often at dictation, or their secretaries were very good at, you know, turning what they said into readable and sensible prose. But I have got quite used to saying, um, hello, mum, comma, new line. Um, (laughs) Hope you're having a great day, exclamation mark, smiley. And I am a bit of a stickler for punctuation and things. So I do get used to saying that and putting that in. And so 
Whether that affects the flow, I don't know. No, I haven't thought about this. I mean, I haven't sat down and dictated very large passages of text. It's just that if I'm walking the dog, (laughs) as you know, a lot of my life revolves around walking the dog. Um, And I get an urgent message coming in. It's likely that I will dictate a response to it rather than typing a response to it partly because it's hard to type in while walking. But it is, uh, to me, you know, if you had suggested that would be the case 15, 20 years ago, I would have been very surprised. And and I, this is the power. I think most of this is the power of being able to just gather huge amounts of data, because if you can get enough voice samples from people, you can train networks um, or algorithms, non, not necessarily uh, at, a machine learning type algorithm in a way that you just can't do by uh, you know, from the days when we you know you had to record fifty people to uh, to to test out your voice recognition engine. Now you can you know <laughs> put it on a website where where it, you know, fifty thousand or fifty million people will end up using it, and that just completely changes how easy it is to to do this. And um, and so I think the internet is responsible for many more things like this working simply because of the amount of data you can gather so easily. It, what's fascinating to me is that community efforts around making some of these things possible, you know, we see the open street maps of the world and, and such projects, um, but a lot of this sort of like democratic data that is so useful to humanity, like the power to dictate accurately, it feels these days like that power is actually controlled from you know, a few corporations who are doing some amazing things in allowing us to, you know, dictate into your phone and such. How do you feel about that being sort of centralized in a way? And do you think there's a future when these companies don't exist? That That is a very interesting question. I mean, you could do this on a big scale if you could get people to volunteer their data, but it's very hard to explain to users what it could be used for, what privacy issues you're actually giving up, you know, and to get people to tick a box saying, yes, you can do this is quite hard unless they're getting something very tangible in return, like, you know, the ability to to search the web or something like that. And um, it is amazing what at the moment we are willing to give up in terms of being able to type, type into a Google prompt. But it is also amazing the power that that gives you. And so we think for most people think that that trade off is worthwhile. And of course, some, you know, things like Facebook, um, Twitter are, you know, on a whole different scale of, of data gathering. And uh, this this whole idea that you are the product, if you can't tell what the product is, you are the product, is really, really true yeah. here. Um, but the question is, do we believe that overall, this is a trade worth making, right? How much privacy are we willing to give up in exchange for me being able to dictate to my phone or me being able to ask my Amazon Echo to do, you know, something for me, like turn the lights off. And uh, everyone's everyone's different about this. A lot of people are conspiracy theorists. <laughs> a lot of people have a great distrust of large, uh, large organizations and so on. I don't in general, you know, I tend in that direction. But it's a sliding scale. And I, I think it's very hard for people to understand the implications of the data they are giving away. And it's very it's very hard to predict. Even if you do understand this stuff, it's very hard to predict what they may be useful for. So I suspect over over the coming decades, we will, <laughs> we will get better at 
assessing what what privacy we're giving up uh, either you know to, for, for other people's corporate gain and often for our benefits and um, it's just really hard to describe but I think a lot of this is an education thing it, it is amazing to me so my, my wife also works at Cambridge University she's interviewing students uh, very shortly or has just been interviewing students for the the next academic year and I realize that most of them learned to read after Twitter was founded so they have <laughs> right they have never known a world without twitter and you know and that makes me feel old i re- i remember when i when i realized that makes me feel old right i remember when i i realized that the students she was interviewing had been born after star trek you know i mean as, or after star wars i think mean, you know the original star wars <laughs> right, film, right, and that right. made me feel yes. old and that's like in the 70s or something people growing up today people people coming to college today people going out and getting jobs and getting married today have never known a world without twitter many of them and uh, and it's interesting and, and facebook and and that's part of their lives now does that mean that they're better able to assess the impact this has on their lives or or you know whether they just take it as normal douglas adams you know had a wonderful phrase which i'm quote which i'm going to get wrong but he said it was something like Anything that you that was invented and existed in the world when you were born is perfectly normal and natural and, and part of everyday life. Anything that's invented between, you know, when you're 18 and 30, or no, no maybe between when you're born and when you're 30 is new and exciting and you'll probably get a career in it. And anything invented after you're 30 is against the natural order of things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I, it, it's, it's hard. I, uh, I really don't know what uh, impact this will have. Uh, you know, in the longer term on our society and so on, that people have grown up with this. But it's so easy to be focused on the present. And you think, well, it's not that long ago that we were, people were saying, you know, kids today, they're growing up, they've never known a world without the telephone, or they've never known a world without the printing press, or they've never... So whenever we get concerned about new technologies, you have to think, well, this has happened before and humanity is still here. This comes up when you talk about electric cars, right? You know, which need much less maintenance than than traditional cars. And what's going to happen to all of those people involved in the automobile industry, involved in servicing these cars, who at the very least are going to have to learn new skills and probably are going to have much less to do and so on. And uh, particularly my wife's from the Detroit area. So, you know, this is the car related stuff is very much in her mind. And then you think, well, hang on, the, the same thing happened to blacksmiths, you know, not that long ago when people stopped needing horseshoes and, and all of that. And, and that whole industry, that whole um, profession vanished in a very short space of time. But often, you know, long enough that the people who were doing it, you know, gradually retired or died or whatever, and just no, nobody knew took it up. But it is interesting. I think that often we have these doom and gloom predictions about technology, and I certainly do this too. And you think, well, yes, and what happened when the printing press came along? Similar things. So, And, and so I wonder for you, you know, since maybe in this conversation, you and I are both dinosaurs, but how is it for you that you've kept that... Hmm. forward-looking perspective in both your personal life and your work life to, you know, because I I read earlier many of the sort of companies and ventures that you've founded or been a part of that have sort of always kind of pushed your envelope, your personal envelope forward. So how have you been able to keep that 
interest in new technologies fresh for you and that you've been able to always be excited about the next thing? Well, I, uh, part of this is just I love gadgets, right? So, um, so I like playing with this stuff. And I often thought that what I really needed when I was starting a business, I used to tell this to my investors, uh, you need to find me someone who's really interested in business. I'm not a good business person because I'm not that interested in money. Uh, if, I, if I were, I would have more of it by now. Uh, I, like, I like money because it lets me play with technology. And what you need to find as my business partner, Mr. Investor, is you need to find someone who likes technology because because it enables them to make money. And then we would, you know, um, we, that would be a good partnership. And so, yes, for, for whatever reason, I'm just a geek and I like, I like toys. But I think there are some useful things. One of my favorite, I'm very fond of quotations, but I don't know who first said this, but I've always liked the saying that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> I certainly agree with that. Right. So I have deliberately gone out of my way to hire people who are smarter than me or to work in universities with people who are smarter than me or whatever, because otherwise, how are you going to learn, right? If you know more than everybody else around you, you may feel good for a brief period, but you'll be the same dull person, you know, 10 years from now. And if you can always be looking for people who are going to challenge you, people who are who, who know more than you, people who program in different languages from you, in my particular case, or um, understand this new machine learning stuff in a way that you don't, or whatever it may be, then uh, you have to be more humble, but you also learn a great deal more. And I think that's part of it. And, and that, that works for anything, right? It's uh, In my case, it's technology. But frankly, if you're the best artist in your art group, then you're probably not going to learn much from the other artists around you. Or if you're the best musician, then you, you know, it seems to me that this is a good rule to apply to life. Anyway, if, if you're better than everyone else around you, go somewhere else. Well, and yet there's something to be said for mentorship as well, because necessarily there's someone in that room who's, you know, subjectively the best at whatever it is. Yes, that's right. So I guess somebody always has to be best. Uh, you know, one person has to be best. And yes, they and, and uh, it's quite correct. You should always try and, and help those who who have less experience or less expertise or less skill than, than you do. But if you're always top of the pile, I think then that's a, a bad place to be. You, if, if you're doing that, if you're mentoring, if you're helping, if you're teaching, then that's wonderful and you should do that. And you should probably also make sure that you don't spend all your time doing that, but you go somewhere where you're learning and you're, um, you're expanding and so on. I think you just nailed it. That's the key is don't keep your environment stagnant. Change your environment so that you change your challenges, right? I think that's right. I think that's right. And someone said you should uh, the key to a happy and successful life is to you know step outside your comfort zone at least once a day kind of thing <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, i've heard versions of that that say once a week or once a year or whatever but but nonetheless if if your life becomes very comfortable then that may be what you want but you can keep learning until you until you die or you can become very comfortable you know 50 years before you die and 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 not learn anything ever after so it that just depends on your personality i think but Anyway, uh, that's uh, part of my rule is, yes, always to try, try and mix with people who are, who are smarter than me, which is not difficult. <laughs> <laughs> which projects are taking you outside of your comfort zone these days? Like, which, which, where are you pushing yourself in some ways? Ah, that's a really good question. Actually, more, well, it's, at the moment, it's more related to hobbies. I'm, I, I do like... I'm, I'm a, I, I used to say, I still do say, that I'm a jack of all trades and master of, well, very few. And 
I think different people can find satisfaction in different ways. For me, I love knowing a little bit about lots of things. And uh, some people like becoming really, really expert on on one or two things. And uh, that's a really interesting difference in personality. So I, I I have a lot of hobbies, right, about which most of them I am far from expert in. But um, I like playing with photography. I like riding horses. I like paddling a kayak. I like sailing a boat. I like uh, scuba diving. I like hang gliding, you know, all of these things. And a lot of them I've done a very small number of times, but you've had that experience, right? And, and, and it's, it's almost like a sort of bucket list mentality, which I think is probably a terrible thing. But it, I think it would be sad to go all the way through your life and never have done scuba diving. Have you, have you dived, Brent? I, you know, travel is certainly a thing I chase. Um, so I've not done scuba diving yet, but I have done paragliding. Oh, excellent. excellent. You mentioned hang gliding. I've certainly done some paragliding. So adventure is certainly on my side. And this is great, right? You get to see the world from a comp- completely different angle. And I, you know, I love diving it, but but I haven't done it for 10 years or something. But you can look at a stretch of water and you can say, I, I have some image of what it's like being underneath that. I mean, diving is great fun because it's just like flying. You know, you, you, you balance, you you find your level and you maintain a level and you float over the little fish or corals or whatever is underneath you. So that's part of it. But you also have a view of a whole world that somebody who stays above the surface all their life never has. And uh, and I think flying is just the same and, you know, all of these things. But so I like trying to have the experience of doing this, not just a one-off you know, tandem parachute jumps, for example. You know, that's that's not quite enough for me. It's better to do a, a tandem parachute jump than not to, than never to... It, it is better to jump in tandem than never to jump at all. But it's... Um, <laughs> but really, part of the experience is actually voluntarily getting up the... Um, the, the the guts to throw yourself out of an aeroplane, which is something no same person would normally do. And you realize what a wonderful experience it is. And uh, so I, I like collecting these sort of experiences and going just a little bit further than, um, than you know, knowing the, the, than the bucket list. I have jumped out of an aeroplane, but, you know, I'm, I'm not really an expert in anything. Um, and for me, that's a, that's a fun way to to spend life right you've, you've done enough of these things that you can when if you read a book or watch a movie or or hear someone talking about it you say yeah i, I can empathize with that I, I i i've been there i know roughly what it's like um in a way that uh, that you can't do if you if you haven't had that experience of it well and i've been reflecting as you've been sharing these experiences on how i wonder if these sort of short-term dives into an experience, an adventure, let's call it. I wonder if they inform imagination for you because, you know, you mentioned seeing below the sea and the depths of the sea and how, if you've never done it, you don't even know what that reference point is like. And so I wonder if if chasing adventure, you know, both in these kind of like paragliding and those kind of physical activities, but also in exploring new technologies might inform our imagination as to, you know, pushing the boundaries of what's even possible. I think that's right, because I think that innovation is a very strange thing. If we go back to technology for a moment, 
almost any invention is invented in dozens of places at the same time, particularly now, right? Because everybody has access to the same information. There are millions and millions of people out there. A lot of them are smart. They they can all read the same papers or what see the same websites or, you know, get access to the same technologies. And so this is uh things get invented in the same time at the same time in multiple places and 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 this has always been the case you know there's it's the story of alexander graham bell and his patents for the telephone and so on is a really interesting one there's another chap whose name i'm not going to remember now uh i want to say edward no thomas gray something like that but it's interesting isn't it that i can't remember his name Right. And yet he actually has a much better claim to be the inventor of the telephone than Alexander Graham Bell does. And he, you know, uh, the, the, the story goes that Bell just happened to have more friends in the patent office. And, and, uh, so, um, there's a nice joke. <laughs> did, you, did you know that Leonardo da Vinci invented the first telephone? But it wasn't any use until Alexander Graham Bell invented the second one. And when he tried to call up Leonardo, he discovered he'd been dead for 400 years. <laughs> <laughs> But, That's lovely. Um, but, but I think that um, most things are are invented in many places at once, and so the way we often the way we take leaps forward in innovation is by cross fertilization. It's it's like genetics. It's when you know two species do manage to interbreed that you get something you know really new. Or when 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 uh, the the genetic struct the genetic genetic pool is made more diverse. And so yeah, I think if you can mix with people from widely different disciplines, um, and you know whether that's through your social circles or your church or your or uh, university or your whatever it may be if you can if you can put yourself in a room where you discover that actually the thing you've been doing as a medical technology is actually very useful for scuba divers or the other way around which might never occur to you if you haven't at least spent time with people who scuba dive or actually done it yourself so yes perhaps perhaps there is something that I, wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to read too much into that but I do think that um, in the same way as you know human reproduction works by mixing gene pools right and that's uh that's a, a very effective way of um of coming up with new human beings i think it's um it, it can be a very effective way of coming up with uh with new ideas and if you have too limited a gene pool from which to to draw we know about the problems that that can cause with genetics in very small populations or you know um and so uh, you know, I suspect the same is true of um, of innovation and ideas. Richard Dawkins was right when he talked about memes in the early days. You know, he talked about memes long before memes became something that we talk about on the internet. And it was this idea of ideas that can reproduce themselves, be spread, and what causes an idea to be successful. And he was comparing that to natural selection and evolution. And yes, I think you have to you have to mix up ideas. So. I don't know whether really my jumping out of planes on parachutes has any has had any real in a real impact on my my ability to come up with new technologies. But you know, uh, at least if you're interested in a wide range of different technologies, then perhaps you are more able to um, uh, to see opportunities when something new comes along. But I, I wouldn't really claim that for myself. But I think people who are really good at this often it's because they read very widely or they have a, a, a wide widely varied background. I'm curious, in the same vein as this discussion, um, I know you have a little bit of experience with the patent system, and I'm curious to hear 
from your perspective, if you think the patent system is good or if it's maybe a challenge for innovation in sharing ideas because it has this sort of maybe combative feel to it from my perspective. It's really hard. I don't have a better answer to this, I think, than anyone else does. Uh, it's on the one hand, I think that patents are very, very often misapplied or at least acquired for the wrong purposes. They are acquired often far too easily, though I'm, I have to say I haven't done this for a while. I did a lot of patent stuff in the past. I haven't done it for a while. It's a sort of an arms race. I mean, I don't know if it's still the case. IBM used to be the uh, the the largest holder of patents and certainly the most frequently acquiring. And I worked out at one point that they, I, I can't remember the number, but they were gaining huge numbers of patents, you know, per day, <laughs> um, certainly per week. And you think, where do these go? They, they aren't making use of all of these innovations. Uh, this is not to criticize IBM, by the way. Everybody, everybody does this, or lots of people do this. These are ideas that they have managed to, they, they've managed to get through the patent system, get some sort of stamp on them, and they go in a filing cabinet somewhere or now in a database somewhere, just in case they ever need to be used against somebody else who's making patent claims against them. And you say, ah, oh, well, we will... Um, uh, you know, we'll give you 50 of our patents in exchange for being able to to make use of this one of yours and so on. And that just doesn't seem to me what the system was designed to do or, or is good at. There's also the problem with patents in certainly in the, the dot-com era and the and software in general that software moves much faster than the patent office does and technology often moves much faster than the patent office does and you know we would apply for intellectual property in some of my startups and you know by the time it was granted the company no longer existed often or <laughs> or had moved on to doing something completely different oh, and so on <laughs> having said all of that i have been a great beneficiary of patents in the past not my own a, a good friend of mine uh, martin king who sadly is no longer with us came up with the T9 predictive text system. Do you remember this? Yeah, of course I do. And it was a real change in the way that, you know, your thumbs worked on a, on a early cell phones for sure. So for, for, for those, for those younger than, uh, than us, uh, <laughs> yeah, basically on, a, on the old style phone keyboard, if you wanted to, you know, you would have two or three letters assigned to each key. And if you wanted to send someone a text message, you know, and you wanted to type the letter O, you would have to press the, whatever it would be a six, three times because six meant M, N and O or whatever. And so you'd have to press it three times to get an O. And basically what T9 did was use a dictionary lookup so that um, you would type the sequence of keys that you wanted, one per letter, and it would work out the very small number of words that could actually match that sequence of keys. And then you just had to pick between one or two of them if there was more than one. And so generally you only had to press one key at a time. Now, actually, what's interesting here is that uh, people often don't know where this came from. Martin was originally working on eye-tracking technologies for people with severe disabilities. So in the early days, this was, oh gosh, this must have been eight, the 80s or something. And he was looking at eye-trackers, which were big and bulky and very expensive and only worked if you held your head very, very still and so on. And he came up with a really low cost, very simple way of doing basic eye tracking, which was he had some glasses, which you wore and little, you know, ring of LEDs around around the rim of, of the eyes and little 
optical sensors. So what would happen is basically, if you imagine each of these LEDs lights up in turn in a sort of clock pattern, I think there were 10 or 12 around your eye. And uh, as it lit up, another 10 or 12 opto sensors would pick up how much reflection there was from your eye. And so very simple, no no vision, no cameras, no anything here. We're talking about the 80s. But because your eyeball is not spherical, the different readings that you got from this, uh, from this one LED and the 10 sensors would read different amounts. And so they could work out roughly which direction you were looking. And you then move on to the next LED and light it up again and pick it up with the 10 sensors. And you basically do that very fast. So what you got when you're wearing these glasses was in the periphery of your vision, you would see these, these glowing red spots and you could look in their direction and the system could tell that your eyes were moving in this direction. And so for people suffering from paraplegia or other other problems, you could start picking up signals, serious signals, just from eye movements. And so the next question he had was, can you actually type on a 10-key keyboard if you've only essentially got 10 mm. different positions you can look at? And he did a lot of work on this and then and, and how you would disambiguate. And then he realized that there were other things around which had sort of 10, 12-key keyboards. <laughs> and, um, uh, and so this technology got used in mobile phones and it was it was interesting for a whole variety of reasons because you know now we live in a world with app stores and so on this was just about the first third-party technology that was really sold to motorola and ericsson and and nokia and so on and embedded in in all of those phones back then it changed the way people people typed we were talking about keyboards right <laughs> and uh, yeah certainly yeah, a full circle yeah that's right and so um so martin and the the company he he started tjic which was based in seattle got some good patents on this and they were sold to AOL at just the right time and Martin therefore had reasonable resources just at the time that I became friends with him and we went off and did various projects together and so I have to say that a small number of good patents indirectly funded my salary for many years and and several startups I was involved in and I think they were you know valid patents and I I you know I I am I have come across many valid patents which have done what the patent system is meant to do. And I think they do this in a lot of fields, but whether they really do it in my own field of, you know, software and computing, very often I'm not at all sure. So um, I have I have very mixed feelings about the patent system. <laughs> I think it's widely abused. Do I think the world would be better without it at all? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think... 50 years ago, they were very valuable. And now, if you got rid of the patent system, I wonder what would happen. The argument in favour favor of it is usually that things like, you know, pharmaceuticals that take many, many years to, to produce and are terribly expensive to produce only work. You can only make that viable on a commercial basis if you can then protect the results of your work. And, of course, the whole idea originally of the patent system was... The alternative is to keep everything a secret, right? You never, you never reveal anything about how your product works, how your drug works, how whatever. You keep it as a trade secret, which is a very nice alternative to patenting. If you can keep secret how your app works or your your um, your technology works, but the problem is then that there is an incentive for people never to reveal anything about their discoveries, and so the patent system is designed to give you a monopoly for a while in exchange for sharing your knowledge with others. But 
when there are, you know, so many thousand new patents per day filed for tiny little things and so many of them are invalidated, in the end, so much of the patent system and, and whether a patent is successful just depends on who can afford the most expensive lawyers if it's ever challenged, then I'm not sure how much it really fulfills those roles. But the basic idea of the patent system, I think, is a good one. But it's undergoing many challenges at the moment. I, it brings me to two thoughts, and I think I'll touch on one at a time here. I see some relations to open source software in this regard because, you know, one group of people who are writing software, generally the open source stuff, is they're free to share it. They feel like sharing it is one of its best features and yet want to guarantee that it's being shared. And it feels like patents in some way, you know, it's a way of sharing and yet giving credit where it's due. Do you... Do you feel like there are some similarities there? And do you think open source software has some of the similar challenges? I guess that's right. Open source kind of, particularly the old GNU public license, which for those who don't know, basically said that we are sharing this technology. Uh, so, for example, you write, a, you write a program, so much of the modern web, so much of the internet runs on open source software, which was often shared with this basic license, which says it's here, it's freely available, you can use it, you can modify it, you can redistribute it. Uh, but if you redistribute it, you have to redistribute it on these same terms. So if you come and you make an enhanced version, you can use it in your product, but you also have to give away the software you know, the source code for the software in the same way as you got it for free in the first place. And that, I'm simplifying here, there are many other different open source licenses which don't say that, but um, but that was one of the key ones that, that drove a lot of the, the original open source movement. And uh, I think, you know, it has in general worked very well. And so much of the modern world runs on open source software. It is it is phenomenal, actually, that that has basically won. It hasn't necessarily won on the desktop for most people, but so much of Amazon and Google and the internet infrastructure as a whole and so on just wouldn't exist in their current form without open source software. It has ended up being the model that has worked there. And in the past, you know, there have been various attempts by companies like Microsoft to to capture a segment of the internet and control it, or you know, often the whole internet. And they haven't been able to because the open source, firstly, the open source product has been better. And secondly, the people who are actually going and implementing, the people who are going and creating their new products based on the internet and want to use the open source one because they can see its advantages. And that's not always the case, of course. But as a general rule, there is certainly a, a very big part of our modern world that that is driven by open source and not everybody rec recognizes that i think that this this model has worked amazingly well there are now a variety of open source licenses and you can pick if you want to give your stuff away to the world often this is driven by i'm happy for anybody in the world to use this but it if anybody starts making money out of it, I think I should have some share. Or, you know, different people have different motivations, right? I'm, if I give this away, 
is it really right that somebody else takes this and then goes and makes lots of money from it directly, you know, taking my product kind of thing. And so the the degree to, to which you allow the stuff that you've given away to become part of a commercial product is often the basis of various different open source licenses. So I'm a huge fan of open source. I use it all the time. I make my living from it. I have written various open source projects. The discussion about open source versus copyright is a common one. The discussion about, about open source versus the patent system and, and how those are related isn't one I've considered very carefully. The original GNU public license did allow people to release software without losing complete control of it. And so probably encouraged an awful lot of idea sharing in a way that might not have happened if it was a case of either give it away or keep it completely secret. And so I guess the patent system is a bit like that. Yes, it, it, it encourages people to share things and in exchange gives them some rights. But how well the patent system works, I think, is questionable. Uh, open source, I think, has often proven to be rather better, though you know, wouldn't be applicable to all the cases that the patent system applies to. <laughs> so. One of the very large innovations in software, as you mentioned, is you know permissive open source kind of licensing, which has enabled innovation between groups and often between people who don't even know each other and do get connected because they have shared ideas. And yet I wonder, you know, maybe the patent system is, I was going to go somewhere, but now I'm reconsidering. I was going to say maybe the patent system is licensing for physical products, but these days it's not. It's just for intellectual property, isn't it? Well, the patent system, exactly what you can do varies a bit around the world as well. So, um, I, you know, I'm rusty on this, but it certainly used to be the case that sort of business process patents, for example, were things that you could file in the States, but not certainly not in general here and, and in Europe, I think. So a, a method of doing business... It wasn't wasn't the same around the world in terms of what you could patent. The degree to which you could patent a software algorithm, you know, has also varied in different parts of the world. So what works in one place doesn't work in in others. I mean, I think there is a problem with patents that they they're, they're very cheap to apply for, and they are very expensive to maintain. If you actually want to get one and look after it and 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 keep it valid and extend it to cover the whole world and so on that starts to become a fairly expensive process just getting a patent in the first place particularly if you write it yourself and don't use a lawyer and file it in you know it's much cheaper here i think than in the states for example you can get a patent for a couple of hundred dollars kind of thing if you're willing to do the work yourself and you're good at it but as soon as that becomes you know passes certain deadlines starts to uh, starts to become international and so it starts to become very expensive which is good because it means that you don't get patents kept around for frivolous reasons often they do become too expensive to maintain and so the the ideas behind them is are kind of released into the public domain but the downside is that people the big corporations can afford to keep maintaining them and expanding them and extending them whereas small individual inventors often can't or you know small startup companies often can't and that means that it's often those big companies that have fewer incentives actually to to release this stuff into the world which is why i talked about this idea of an arms race you know you sort of keep a filing cabinet full of patents almost as a currency right uh, so that you can exchange you know if you're if you're nokia you can exchange them with 
whoever your competition might be when you find that they have a pattern that you want to license. And it seems to me that it's used a lot for that and that um, it's they are harder. They, they're nice and easy to get, but they're much harder to actually make use of if you are a smaller company. So I, I think that's a challenge. You know, you did talk about how computers and software and the ideas around that world are some of the most creative and one question that has just stuck with me since you mentioned that, that I hadn't got a chance to ask was, I wondered what issues or problems in the world you were hoping that computers and technology might solve that you're not seeing currently solved? Is there anything that really like gets to your heart and you'd think, oh, I would really love that to be innovated on or solved for a small group of people or a large group of people? There are lots of little issues it would be nice to solve, and they are very much first world problems. And I, uh, you know, I am conscious that I do live very much now. I, I was born in Africa, actually. I was born in a very poor area oh. of Africa, and uh, but I only lived there for my first three years. But that's always been part of my my sort of upbringing. My parents were very much involved in in you know dealing with people at the opposite end of the economic spectrum, and so this is sort of in my bloodstream a bit. I'm very I've always been conscious about how fortunate we are and how far most of the world is from this. But it is the case that technology technology has made this huge difference. So I, I was involved um, we, we mentioned earlier NDO. So uh, this was a not-for-profit organization that Martin and I set up. NDO is the Swahili word for yes. Lovely. Right. So it's a terrible name for an organization because nobody knows how to pronounce it. Or indeed, if you hear it, nobody knows how to spell it. I was we were looking for an idea for this startup that we thought would have some benefits for, for the developing world. And we wanted something that was uh, positive and affirmative. And but, you know, um, we used to tell people that that's what we were looking for in our brand, you know, something that was international and affirmative. And that was all rubbish. What we were actually looking for was a domain name. And um, the I looked for all, all of the names I could think of in English and French and German and so on. And I, and I, uh, I thought, well, let's try Swahili. Because <laughs> I knew a little Swahili, not very much now. Um, but, um, okay. but sure enough, the first word I typed in was yes. And I could get ndo.com, ndo.org, ndo.basically anything I wanted. And so I grabbed it and we used to claim that this was the reason we had, we had named this organization, you know, the, the positive yes as a, you know, African world. Swahili is a fairly major language. It's, you know, uh, it's, I think the first language of sort of about 50 million people or something and, and the second language of quite a few more. And yet I realized after a while that the fact that I was so easily able to get the word yes in this major language was actually quite significant. It was indicative of the problem we were trying to solve, right? Why was it that, you know, after the, the DNS system had become crowded, every word in, in English had been snapped up pretty much, and we were trying to come up with a word for an organization that I could still get the word yes in, in Swahili. Um, and it showed just how little internet coverage there was in, you know, East Africa. And, uh, and so after a while, I, you know, I actually started to tell this story because, um, because what we were trying to do was bring computational power to 
large numbers of people who couldn't otherwise afford it. And the way we were doing this was, at the time, the thing that was really expensive, and as it happened, also very environmentally unfriendly, was building a PC. And the screens were less expensive then, the keyboards on mice were less expensive, the PC was the expensive bit. And so we we thought, could we use open source software to share a PC effectively between several people? rather than, say, in an internet cafe, having one PC at each desk. You know, PCs were, thanks to Moore's law, were eight times faster than they were three years ago. But people weren't typing eight times as fast, and they weren't reading web pages eight times as fast. So we should be able to share a PC between eight people. And they would have, okay, they would have the experience that you might have had two or three years ago, but that was just fine. And if you could share the cost of a PC, uh, you know, just halve it or even more than that then you massively increase the number of people who could have access to that kind of technology. And this was at about the time where everything was starting to be digitized, right? If you don't have access to a PC back then, it was like, well, why would these people want spreadsheets? Well, the answer is that, you know, we could see that the world was moving towards digital music and digital photography and digital dictionaries and digital Wikipedias and, you know, all of this stuff. And the more of the world you could give access to that way, the better. So we we had a technology that we thought would would enable that, and and it was a fun project. And it, when you work on a project like this, which is basically for whatever reason you you hope for the good of humanity, by the way, you can get really good publicity. Journalists want to love to talk to you. People like a good news story for their news articles. Right? Uh, it's more much more interesting than the latest product from some big corporate manufacturer. If you can say this idea that might change the way internet cafes are, are built in Tanzania is uh, is a much more interesting story for many for many people so it's a really fun thing to work on if you get the chance to work on technology for for the poorer sections of society I would I would really recommend it because it can be very satisfying and can make quite a difference now in our particular case the technology we developed didn't take off so much for that particular use because what we failed to predict was the sudden and massive spread of smartphones which were completely unknown when we pretty much when we started the project and of course took over the world and and this is often the case and uh, we were doing this just about the same time as the um the one laptop per child project nicholas negroponte's thing which is often now uh, derided as a failure and i but i think it was incredibly important because for those who don't know the story, um, this was a team based at MIT originally who who said, we're going to produce a $100 laptop, which was completely unthinkable at the time. You know, 100, uh, laptops cost $1,000, not $100. And this one laptop per child idea that could you give everybody in the world or at least a much larger number of people in the world a laptop was was so outrageous that it got lots of attention and in the end failed. They didn't actually manage to do this. But what they did do was dramatically cut the cost of uh, a large number of technologies. You know, you can now buy extremely cheap laptops, not necessarily very good ones, but you may not be in a financial position to have that choice in a way that you really couldn't, I think, before the one laptop per child just really got people saying, how cheap could you make this technology? And showing that it was possible to get at least close to that number, which was a completely unthinkable number beforehand. So I always see that as a success. I do think that 
it was just after that that people started producing these very cheap netbooks and other other machines which did actually make quite a difference in large parts of the world it's just that the mobile phone came along as as it happened and became the dominant way that people access the internet well and also the mobile phone is is wonderful in that there are flagship versions that are you know a thousand plus dollars for you know some of the most advanced people who are doing well hopefully they're using their cell phone to its max potential i don't think that's actually true <laughs> most of the time but you also see cell phones these days that are sub a hundred dollars that are somewhat reasonable or the used market because of the nature of mobile phones is filled with you know three-year-old flagships that are the price of you know a few cups of coffee. So um, there's something to be said for that too. Yes. And it's great fun watching how other parts of the world leapfrog bits of technology. So, um, you know, in many parts of Africa, they they didn't really ever have credit cards. <laughs> they went straight from cash payments to mobile phone-based payments without that intervening technology, whereas... Probably a good thing. <laughs> probably a good thing, right, yes. Uh, and, uh, and they often went from never having a phone line to having a mobile phone without landlines in between and so on. And, as, and it's fun to see what bits, you know, what works in different places um, for a whole variety of reasons. It's sometimes places leapfrog technologies so even in the sort of uh first world you know we for a while we had in general much better mobile phones here in europe than in north america and that was because you got them earlier in north america and so they had they were analog based and so there was much more inertia there. We we kind of started, I mean, we did have analog mobile phones here, but essentially the mass deployment of mobile phones was a bit later here when the, and, and was based on digital standards, whereas it started in the States on analog and therefore was much harder to shift over. And so often places that get technologies later get a chance to, <laughs> to take advantage of the developments that have been done elsewhere. And that can be quite fun. Yeah, huge advantage for sure. Quentin, I'm realizing we've had a lovely conversation and time has totally just passed so quickly we've been talking for a long time haven't we we i didn't know we were going anywhere in this sort of direction <laughs> but uh i i think it's been lovely um i typically you know i read a rather long description of some of the things that you've done in the past and i, I only think we've touched on two or three of them so i i, I think i would love to have you uh, back for another chat that would be delightful well thank you but i do have uh, a question for you it's a little bit related to what we just touched on and um maybe it's a nice segue <laughs> i was curious if there is something that you would like to share with listeners Maybe you want to nudge them to think about a certain problem or there's some great book you've read recently or something like that. Is there anything you'd like to share? Okay, yes. Well well I have a couple okay, I've got a couple of ideas. One is one is a book. One is a book. So yes, I, I would like to recommend Charles Arthur's book called Social Warming. Now, due disclosure, Charles is a friend of mine, uh, but he's a very respected tech journalist and writer um, who has written for many publications here in the UK and, and internationally. And he's written a book called Social Warming, which I think is a very good book. In fact, I think I, I hesitate to use the phrase required reading, but I do think actually it is very important for people to read. And the basic idea of social warming, the reason he uses that title is that is the 
he's comparing it obviously to global warming uh, the effect of social networks and the effect of the 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 lifestyles we have that have contributed to global warming and he's saying that global warming didn't come about because of some big single environmental catastrophe right we suddenly found ourselves in a very different world with a very different we suddenly recognized we we're in a very different world with a set of very different problems because of lots of small decisions that have been made over the past decades and he's then looking at social networks and saying, what are the, you know, there's very few big major disasters come about because of social networks. So he does look at some very dramatic world events and, and, and talk about what led to those. But he's saying, if you take a world where so many people get their information, get their social interactions, get their news, get their belief systems, get their understanding of, of medicine and, and pandemics and so on from social networks, where they are essentially getting them from algorithms that are tuned for very specific things. If you take that over an extended period, what will that do? And... Um, how will we view the world if if we don't appreciate this if we don't appreciate that our information is uh, everything we're we're reading and viewing and so on is being fed to us by algorithms that are designed to keep us engaged that are designed to shock us or make us uh, uh, you know um amused or insulted or enhance our prejudices or whatever it may be that keeps us engaged then that's a different world from a world we've been in the past um, where, you know, some some obviously news and things has been worked on that basis, but it's never been fine-tuned to this um, to this degree. And so I, I do recommend Social Warming, very good book, uh, will make you think about, about the world where so much of, of our background information comes from um, comes from social networks and their algorithms and a, a friend of mine to whom we recommended this uh, after she'd read it she immediately went and bought copies for all the teachers in all of her children's schools and said you must read this <laughs> we probably hated her but, but but nonetheless that was how valuable she thought it was and it, it, mm. it is a Charles is a very thoughtful very considered person and this is not scaremongering this is very sensibly thought through and argued and it's enjoyable reading so I recommend Social Warming by Charles Arthur. The other thing, I, I as you gathered from talking, I do like I, gathering quotations. And um, so I <laughs> leave you with one of my favourite quotations. Now, the problem with quotations is that um, as soon as you hear one that's supposedly said by Einstein or supposedly said by JFK or something like this, you realise that... Or Mark Twain. Or Mark Twain or whoever, yes. Um, <laughs> you would discover that actually it was never really said by those people. But So this is one that um, is often attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, but I think uh, also to David Foster Wallace, the writer, um, and probably was actually said by somebody else. But I've always liked this. It goes, um, you would worry less what people thought about you if you knew how infrequently they do. Powerful words, for sure. And th those certainly, they hit me personally, uh, I would say. <laughs> I think that's great. You'd worry less what people thought about you if you knew how infrequently they do so. And so whoever said it, I think that's a great phrase. And I think it's well worth remembering. But is that not uh, such a perfect follow-up to exactly what you were saying about uh, Charles's social warming. I, I see those two as very, very related um, in that, you know, so often we're worried about 
what others think of us when we share some of our accomplishments, especially online. You know, there's. I think that is correct, but I think also often the the problems we have with social networks are because we don't worry enough on them about what people think about, it. or maybe we're more isolated, perhaps, from the normal social cues. And this may be something that you know just humankind has to take some time to to get used to right that that trolls online are are there because they haven't yet developed the sensitivities that we've developed as a society over over many years but one of the things charles talks about is the um the reasons that things like Outrage. You know, people have talked about social networks as a sort of engine for outrage, right? <laughs> and why? Why is this? Well, it's because we find out we find things that we think outrageous uh, very compelling, or we find people who disagree with the ideas of our tribe to be something we care a lot about, right? I use tribe in a, in a general sense here, because that was valuable in the past. It was what bound the tribe together. And, um, and that was an important social construct. And so outrage had its purpose in the past. It's a bit like overeating, right? <laughs> no, um, being able to eat large amounts of food when it became available was a valuable thing in the past. And now it's always available. It becomes a problem. And being able to respond appropriately, you know, the, the emotion of outrage is not necessarily a bad thing. But as soon as um, social networks cotton on to the fact that this is very, very engaging, this is built into our, our, our social, you know, architecture at a very low level, they realise, aha, our algorithms, you know, this is not necessarily a human intervention, but the algorithms will discover that things that are outrageous do keep us engaged. And therefore, we see and see more and more outrageous stuff or things that make us angry or things that also make us laugh, but some of the more gentle, more positive, more cultured, whatever it may be, um, sadly, uh, parts of life are sadly not as engaging. And it's that in instant engagement, and uh, which is sort of like sugar, <laughs> that's bad for us if we have too much of it. Uh, I'm not sure whether that ties back into that quote. Uh, I think it, it maybe not. But I do think, I do think perhaps it ties in perhaps it's more in terms of the sort of, yes, the image that you portray through TikTok or through your YouTube channel or whatever, um, how much is that the real you and how much is that something you are carefully constructing and portraying because of what people will think about you? I guess that is a very important part of this, yeah. And and the question becomes, which part of ourselves do we want to show and should we show? And, and you know, that that I think there's something to be said about meeting someone in person because... Uh, on various levels, both consciously and subconsciously, you get a sense of a person. And I, I feel like with all of the powers and gifts and beauty of the internet, that's not a thing that's easy to reproduce. That is that is interesting, isn't it? Yes. And I mean, here I am supposedly having brunch with you. So this whole idea, Brent, of brun brunch with Brent doesn't work across time zones, right? I, it's true. I, it's, it, it's a long time since my breakfast here. Uh, it works, works, works for you. But, uh, but, you know, the internet, can you imagine what COVID would have been like if we hadn't had uh, all of the communications technologies that, um, that we brought would have been you know, party to in just the last few years, if, you know, most laptops come with a camera built in and, you know, that all of a sudden that's become so much more important than it ever was. You know, we could never have imagined three, four years ago how important this would be. And, um, uh, and, and it has turned out to be. So I think you can, you can understand a lot in 
face-to-face conversations and we're just doing audio here but i i think the value of video conversations is significant and um being able to see somebody uh it is funny now how i've come to assume that calls in general are video calls you know (laughs) if you'd this is what happened on star trek you know in the past you know you could actually have a video call with with captain kirk who was three rooms away i mean that was an amazing you know an amazing idea back then and now you know, we just sort of, I take for granted that I can have a video call with someone while I'm walking my dog. You see, it all comes back to walking my dog in the end. I think that's such a lovely place to um, pause our discussion for now. I think we will certainly uh, get recording together again soon. But I've, I've just got to say, you're leaving me with this huge and satisfied smile from just thinking of all the lovely topics we've been able to explore together. <laughs> well, thank you, Brent. You've been very patient with me rambling on, uh, and I hope it's being, I hope it will be well edited afterwards to take out some of my less coherent bits. And please, everybody, remember that it is evening, getting on into the evening here for me, so I'm not as... I, I, I like to think that I would be more coherent at, at brunch uh, if it were brunch for me. Well, next time, maybe we'll do that and I'll stay up late. We'll do that. What time? Would, yeah, you'd have to stay up very late. No, no, this is this is just fine. This is just fine. Again, thank you so much. And uh, we'll chat soon. Thanks, Brent. It's been great fun. And thanks for uh, you and all the guys at Jupiter. I think you do a great job. And I, I really enjoy many, many of your podcasts. And um, and so it's uh, it's a great honor to be to be a small part of it. And uh, I, I hope it gives some people enjoyment in the way that you've done for, for so many other people. So thank you for that oh yeah thank you so much i i that's a huge compliment so um much appreciated and i will share <laughs>